Well, this morning we take a break from the series in Genesis where we've been, and we take this Sunday to pause and to consider once more the importance of prayer. We'll plan to have a few sermons along this season interjected uh, as we consider more about the importance of prayer in the life of our church. Well, I think most of us have sort of heard the saying of, of don't bring a knife to a gunfight, right? Well, that's good advice. My advice would probably be avoid gunfights altogether if, if you can. But the saying sort of assumes that, that one needs to understand rightly the, the kind of battle that's at stake in order to bring the right weapon for the war, in order to bring the right resources, in order to bring the right tools that one has at their disposal. Bringing those tools is important for a victory to be won, is it not? Well, I wonder today if our daily spiritual battle if that were something like a gunfight, how many of us are showing up with knives? Maybe we show up and we find ourselves frustrated in the day-to-day that we're not seeing the progress that we want in our fight against sin, in our war against Satan, and in our seeking to not become part of the world. You know, perhaps maybe we're not showing up with knives, but we're just showing up unarmed altogether. Well, how can we, as God's people, better prepare ourselves for a real spiritual battle in our daily life? Well, one of the answers, according to God's word, is that we must pray. We must pray. We've got to pray, y'all. And so we turn to God's word in 2 Thessalonians this morning. That's where we'll be the letter, 2 Thessalonians. This, This letter is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica, and this is around A.D. 50 when he writes. This is shortly after he was forced to flee that region because of persecution that broke out from his preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Persecution started to get more and more intense, and so his leadership needed to be absent from that region in order for things to sort of simmer down a bit. And so he leaves, and he starts to write First and Second Thessalonians shortly after that period. You can read more about that in Acts chapter 17. Well, this persecution evidently persisted for some time, perhaps even getting more intense, because he makes reference to it in both of his letters. And in the second letter where we are this morning, it seems to have turned up a few degrees as far as what the Christians are losing, and the cost of following Jesus. 
Well, Paul is writing to this considerably young church. It's probably only been within a year since he was first there preaching and people began to believe. And this young church, new in the faith, is now under strong persecution because of their allegiance to Jesus. And so he writes 2 Thessalonians to to comfort this persecuted church, but also to correct some confused views about the end times that's causing them to live in a way that Christians would not worthily walk in. When the opening of the letter before he writes to give any kind of instruction to this church, in verses 11 and 12, Paul prays for the church. And yet there's a context to this prayer that Paul prays. So we're going to begin in verse 1 and work our way all the way through, read through verse 12 this morning, if you would read that with me. Paul writes and says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. And to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When our time this morning, I want us to think about three aspects of Christian prayer that we see here in the passage this morning. There's, there's much more that could be said, but three aspects of Christian prayer that I want us to glean from Paul's prayer this morning. Firstly, we see that there is a certain perspective in Christian prayer. A a perspective in our prayer, verses 3 through 10. Well, in summary, Paul's perspective here has two sides. It's, It's one of thanksgiving as well as one of confidence. Paul is thankful and confident. 
Well, what is Paul thankful for specifically? Well, he writes and he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So in essence, Paul sees this group of Christians who are growing in the midst of great difficulty, and he thinks to himself, that sight is beautiful. He sees Christian growth and thinks of it as marvelous. He can't help but but look at it and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in the lives of those Christians right there. Well, what are these evidences of grace that Paul is thankful for specifically? Well, we see him list that their faith is growing and their love for one another is increasing. A little later on, he's going to mention that they're persevering under trial. So this faith that he thanks God for is is not so much the faith that's given to them by God at conversion, but this is an increasing faith, an increasing reliance upon God and his promises, that God will make good on his word, and then that therefore controlling the way that they would live, the, the way that they would see the world around them, their attitudes and their hearts. And, and then on top of that faith, there's this love that's for one another. Now this sort of presupposes a, a love that's for God vertically, and out of this love for God vertically that comes from their being made new creatures in Christ, they now have this horizontal love for their covenant community, for this group of Christians that they've committed to walking in life with one another. This love for one another is growing, and then they're persevering under trial, under great persecution, not just merely sort of gritting their teeth and getting through it, but by continuing to walk by faith joyfully as they walk with the Lord and with one another. Well, I think as we sort of see Paul's thanksgiving here, and if we consider our prayer lives, I think it's good for us to even pause and to sort of hold up the list of things that we thank God for on a regular daily basis and hold it up next to Paul's list. And, and ask ourselves, is there overlap here? Are there similarities? Are the things that we give thanks to God for the same things that Paul is so eager and ready to give thanks to God for? You know, commonly, I think we thank God for meals. We thank God, potentially, if we get a promotion at work, if the offer that we've made on a house goes through, which I hear is hard these days, if we get an A on an exam, or if one of our children get into a university that they've applied for. And don't get me wrong, all of those things we should thank God for. We should thank God for those good material gifts. But I think the question to ask is, 
are all of our thanksgivings tied to material well-being and comfort? Or is there more to what we thank God for? You know, what we give thanks for reflects ultimately what we most highly value. What we love and cherish most. You know, I remember one Christmas as a boy getting two presents that stood out to me. One of them was a 12-pack of socks. And then the other one was a bike that I had always wanted. Well, I bet you could probably guess which one I gave thanks for. For the 12-pack of socks, I needed some some prompting and encouragement for my parents to express my gratitude. Well, it just comes naturally, right? The, the reason that I didn't give thanks immediately for the pack of socks is I didn't value that. I, I wanted the bike, Right? But, but what we give thanks for reflects what we cherish and love most. And Paul's example for us here is helpful and instructive because what Paul loves and cherishes and values most is seeing other Christians grow. He loves seeing that. He loves seeing God's grace at work in the lives of other Christians. He loves it. He he sees it and he gets excited. And that excitement is not just simply sort of a a private prayer time excitement that he has in his devotionals. No, he's going to go on to to boast about it. He's going to go on to to boast and to say that therefore, verse 4, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God and your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. Their faith and their love is, is so evident to Paul that he goes on to, to boast. This would have been him saying something like, you know, have you seen how powerfully God is at work in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. He, he would have been saying this to other churches, the, the way that they've endured persecution by faith, the way that they've grown in their love for one another. I mean, it is remarkable, y'all. Now, I think maybe, potentially, some of us as we read this might get a little bit uncomfortable. You know, we we sort of read that and we go like, is Paul kind of like bordering on the edge of like flattery here? Is he sort of just saying this to, to get the Thessalonians thinking pretty good about themselves? Isn't flattery a sin? Well, flattery is a sin. But but this isn't Paul flattering. He's not saying something that's insincere in his heart in order to sort of puff up the minds of the Thessalonians or to get sort of what he wants to get. He's he's actually boasting about what God is doing in their lives. So, So his 
boasting is, is really nothing more than additional thanks and praise to God. And I think it's important and helpful for us to even stop here and think about the way that God-centered encouragement is a godly thing among Christians. God-centered encouragement is a godly thing among believers. We, we should, like Paul, even like our Lord, be generous in the way that we give encouragement. I mean, imagine what your relationships could be like if you were sort of scheming week by week to, to identify evidences of God's grace in the lives of those around you and then to put words to that and say, you know what? I see God growing you in your work ethic here. I see God growing you in the way that you long for holiness and fight for holiness. I see God growing you in your faith and your trust and holding fast to his promises. Well, imagine how much more thanks to God would be given if, if we invite others into thanking God with us for what he's doing in the life of our own local church. Imagine what it would look like if we called upon others to, to give thanks and praise to God for what he's doing. Well, let me do it right now. Because this last week, I, I remember having a conversation with a pastor. We were out discussing things that are good things that are difficult in ministry right now. And one of the things he shared with me that helped me to pause and to give thanks to God was he shared with me that since the COVID pandemic in his local church, less than half of his members have returned to gather for worship. And he shared with me the, the angst that that causes him of wondering how the people in his church are doing, how they're doing spiritually by not sitting regularly under the preaching of God's word together. And I couldn't help but sit there and think, God, thank you. Thank you for the grace that's evident in the life of OBC, for, for their commitment to gather together regularly. And this isn't to just sit there and sort of pat ourselves on the back. That's not it. I, I think what this is about is identifying ways that God has worked in you all and it made you willing and ready and eager to worship him, to gather together, to be fed by his word, to sing songs to one another, to him as well, to give praise to God. I, I praise God for the grace that I see in the lives of the believers here and the love that we have that grows for one another, expressed in tangible acts of helping one another move, watching kids when life gets busy for somebody, meal trains like crazy, right? Whether that's somebody moving or somebody who's recently had a baby, ways that we've met each other's needs tangibly. That gives me great encouragement to see God's grace at work 
in the lives of believers here. And we should give praise to God for that. Well, thanksgiving is not the only thing that shapes Paul's perspective. Paul's perspective is also one of confidence. Paul's perspective, he is confident in God's righteous judgment. Pick up in verse 5 with me. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Well, the faithfulness of these believers in the midst of persecution serves it as what Paul calls evidence or or proof of God's righteous judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I had to ask myself, how is that possible? It's almost sort of counterintuitive, is it not? To look at suffering saints undergoing unjust persecution and to think that right there, that is the evidence of God's righteous judgment. How do you explain that? How how does that show God's righteousness? Well, Paul builds his case pointing to three realities. Three realities here as to why the church suffering and persevering through persecution is evidence of God's righteous judgment. First, he shows us and demonstrates to us that persecution and suffering refines God's people to be holy and fit for his kingdom. He he explains that purpose, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So this is not to say that suffering somehow earns Christians the right to enter the kingdom, but, but rather their perseverance through suffering Perseverance through persecution actually demonstrates the right to enter Christ's kingdom. Paul tells us elsewhere that indeed all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And yet Christians are called to persevere through that persecution. Well, Paul goes on to make two other points concerning how this is righteous of God and his judgment. Secondly, he sees that God's repayment to his own people will be rest and joy in him. God will repay his own people with rest and joy while God's vengeance on the wicked will be eternal punishment. We read about that in verse 6 where Paul writes, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you 
was believed. Well, for believers, there will be vindication. For believers, there will be comfort and rest at the coming of our Lord Jesus. When, when Christ returns, when he returns, he comes to be marveled at, as Paul says. You know, it reminds me of, of the old hymn that, that reads and sings that every eye shall now behold him. Every eye on earth shall behold the king as he comes. They'll see him and they'll see him robed in dreadful majesty. The, the song goes on to say, Yea, amen, let all adore him. High on his eternal throne. Savior, take the power. Savior, take the glory. Claim your kingdom for your own. That's the day that Christians wait for. That's the day that we hope for and long for. That's why we join in the rest of the church throughout all the saints of history and we see and we say, come quickly, Lord. Come quickly, Lord. Here is this massive sense of expectancy that, you know, if, if I had my guess, my guess is that it's largely not all that present in the American church today. That's my guess. My guess is that the anticipation of the Lord's return has sort of become something that's out of sight, out of mind. There's other things that we would rather give our time and attention to thinking about. You know, I, I, I doubt it's something that the church today would deny outright. But, but have we lost something of the power that comes from truly believing, truly embracing, truly anticipating, looking forward to when Jesus comes back? When he comes back to be marveled at among his people. When he comes back to be seen as he is in glory. And even when he comes back to render judgment when he comes back to inflict vengeance on those who've denied him? Or is this sort of more of a doctrinal box for us to check? You know, I think that if we lose sight of this reality, of the return of Christ, I think it means that we run the possibility of being deceived. Being deceived to devote almost all of our time and energy and money to merely temporary fleeting pleasures instead of investing in eternal rewards. I, I think it means that if we lose sight of the return of Christ, it would short-circuit our faith. The faith that we need to, to be able to obey Christ even when we don't see payment on this side of heaven. 
You know, I think it diminishes our witness if we lose sight of the end. You know, can you imagine what would it be like if, if the world's only explanation, the only plausible explanation of the church's walking in obedience is that that's only possible when they are assured that there is life on the other side of death. What if that was the world's only explanation when they looked at the way that Christians loved one another? When they looked at the way that Christians sought to obey their Lord and Master? What if on the last day there's vindication for God's people, there will also be judgment and vengeance on those who don't know the Lord. Consider how sobering this truth is. This is not something that we take lightly. It's not something that we joke about. It's also not something that we can dismiss as untrue. God has told us that it is true. When Christ returns, he will come to execute judgment. It's going to be a great and solemn divide between two groups. On the one hand, those who have turned from their sin and hidden themselves in Christ and put their faith in him. And those who, as Paul says, who have not known God and who have not believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, this shows us that a response to the gospel is not just something that sort of well-meaning people are to do who just want a little bit more religion in their life. The response to the gospel is, is so much more than just a preference. The response to the gospel is God's demand for all of the world. He has given his son, and he has said there is only one way to me. You will either come to me and turn from your self-righteousness, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus Christ, or you will not come to me at all. You will know me only as judge. And you will experience my righteous, good, and eternal wrath and indignation against your rebellion forever. Forever. And it doesn't bring me pleasure to say those words. But I know that they're right. And I know that they're true. And I know that God is right in inflicting that punishment. And there's only one way that that punishment can be taken. It's either on you in eternity. Or it's on the eternal one. Of eternal worth who is put forward to take that punishment. For his people. 
you know, imagine, because some people have a hard time with this. They have a hard time with understanding how is God good in doing this. But imagine a judge sitting before somebody who is part of the Nazi party, who's committed unspeakable atrocities in taking the lives of millions of people. And God takes his stand as judge over those people, and he says, you know what? Because I'm good, because I'm right in my judgment, I think you've experienced enough. I think just sort of the psychological guilt that you have, that's been enough punishment for you. So I'm going to let you go free. I think for most of us, when we hear something like that, something in us cringes and goes, that's not right. There's got to be some kind of payment, some kind of retribution that takes place. And that's God's to dole out. He is the eternal one, the infinite majesty who all of humanity has been committing treason against. And the only way for a crime against God's infinite majesty to be atoned for is if there is an infinite punishment or if there is a punishment of the infinite one. You know, you could think of it like this because I remember growing up in Texas and there we were familiar with uh, wildfires. Middle of the summer, wind's blowing, some grass catches fire, and then it is on. I mean, it is moving. And if you're out in a field when there's a wildfire that's coming through, chances are you're not going to get out. But the only way to escape a wildfire that's coming towards you and burning everything in its path, the only way to escape a situation like that is to create a backfire. What I mean by that is, is you burn all of the area around where you stand. So that way when that fire comes through, it's not going to burn there anymore. Because you're staying right in that spot where the fire has already burned. Well, this is the way that Christians stand before the Lord. We stand precisely where the fire of God's anger has already burned. We stand hidden by faith behind the cross of Jesus Christ, where God, who so loved the world, sent His Son to redeem us from under the curse of the law, to redeem us from the punishment that we deserve of God's righteous wrath poured out. He drank down that cup to the dregs for his people. And if you know him, he did that for you. But if you don't know yourself to be the Lord, You wouldn't call yourself a Christian if you haven't put your faith 
in Jesus Christ. That is the only way for you to be able to escape God's fiery judgment. It's the only way. And my plea and my hope and my my begging of you would be that you would turn from your sin. You would trust in Jesus. You would call upon him so that you would not have to face his indignation. But that when he comes, you can join with the saints in marveling at him. In rejoicing at his return. Well, Paul moves from this perspective of prayer to, secondly, his petitions in prayer. Last two points, much shorter than the first, but Paul's petitions in prayer. Verse 11, he writes, To this end, in light of this perspective, to this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So in light of Paul's perspective, he prays. And Paul prays two requests that we see here. The the first one is that the Thessalonians would be counted worthy of their call by God. That they would be counted worthy of their call. You know, in Paul's letters, when he uses that word, call, the the meaning of it is is not sort of about this general invitation that goes out that some people might respond to and other people might reject. No, when Paul uses this word call, he's, he's referring to what some theologians have called the effectual call of God. What do we mean by effectual call? What, it means that God's voice goes out, and by His Spirit, it is effective in the lives of His chosen people. And those who God has chosen for His own will respond to that effectual call. They're quickened. They're, they're awakened from the dead, and they see God as who he is through the gospel, and they turn from their sins and believe. And so Paul is praying here that the Thessalonian Christians, after being awakened to this call of the gospel, would then live their life more and more in conformity with that call. Paul is praying precisely for for more signs more signs of God's grace in the lives of these believers, that they would grow up into maturity. You know, I think by this first request, it it should be abundantly clear to us that our chief concern in praying to God and what we ask God for shouldn't be that we become successful, wealthy, popular, healthy, happy beautiful people. That should not be the top of our prayer list. Still less does Paul pray that all the Thessalonians' problems would disappear. I mean, Paul could have prayed that. Thessalonians, I am praying right now that the Lord would take you out of the situation that you're in. Probably would have been nice to hear. 
You know, I heard one pastor put it like this. If God was given $100 to spend on you, he might spend a dollar on your health and happiness. He's going to spend 99 of it on your holiness. God wants our holiness. God wants our to look like his son. He wants us to grow in our love for one another, in our faith in his promises. He wants us to grow to look more like him. Now, I think we've got to get this clear that you and I, we are not strong enough or disciplined enough or have enough resolve in and of ourselves to make these steps on our own. I mean, that's exactly why Paul prayed. Paul, Paul doesn't address the Thessalonians and, and sort of say, hey guys, I need you to put a little more skin in the game here. He, he doesn't address the Thessalonians and say, just a little more elbow grease here. Paul prays. Paul prays to God and, and this prayer is the means by which Paul sees that his request will come to fulfill, fulfillment. He, he sees prayer as the means of, the essential means of Christians growing. You know, perhaps a good question to ask ourselves is, is this. If I had the perspective of a thousand years from now, what kind of prayers would I pray now? A thousand years from now, what would I wish would have made my prayer list? How does this heavenly mindedness shape my priorities in prayer? Paul here lists petitions that I think a thousand years from after he wrote this, I bet he was glad of heart that he prayed these prayers. I bet he was thankful before the Lord that he prayed precisely for these things for the Thessalonians. Maybe, said, maybe, it, maybe it be true for us in our prayers, for our church and for one another today. Well, the second petition that Paul prays is that God would bring fruition to each Christian's good, faith-fueled purposes. He writes that he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by its power. You know, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul talks about how we would be the ones who fulfill God's purposes. But, but here, he talks about how God would bring to fruition this every good work that they would set their minds to. And what Paul assumes here is that the grace of God has been so active and at work in the lives of these Christians that they've been so transformed through their conversion to Jesus that they now have this entirely new set of values, entirely new set of resolves and goals and ambitions to where now he prays that all of those good things that God has put in your heart to do, I pray that God would bring those things to fulfillment. 
the Christian starts to think more along lines like, you know, I wonder how can I reach my neighbors with the gospel? You know, perhaps I can have uh, an evangelistic Bible study here, right here in my neighborhood. Or how can I create more margin in my daily schedule to be able to give more time to focusing on and serving my local church? Or, or thinking about, you know, in, in what way can I best leverage the season of life that God's put me in right now for his kingdom? Paul expects these Christians to have redeemed resolves, but he goes on further and asks God to fulfill every good purpose and every act prompted by faith. And in other words, he, he prays that God would take these holy ambitions and, and bring them to fulfillment. Yo, I think this is another encouragement for us that we must ask the Lord. We can be sure in our mind that, you know what, I think God's given me these desires. I'm going to go and do all of these many good things for his name's sake. And yet we know that unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. And so in the things that we think the Lord has even given us to do this week, may this be the beginning of those resolves. May this be the beginning of those resolves in prayer where we say, Lord, unless you build, this is vanity. Lord, unless you bring to fruition these efforts are futile. I need you to work in this way. Well, lastly, thirdly and shortest, the purpose in prayer. Third, let us not miss the purpose in Christian prayer. There's a right purpose that should dominate all of our prayers where he says these things in verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus would be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul seeks two things in his prayer, the glorification of the Lord and the glorification of believers in the Lord Jesus. This word glory comes from the word weight. So, so to glorify the name of Jesus, it means to, to make weighty the majesty of Jesus. For, for people to see Jesus as, as bigger. For, for their vision of Christ to be more and more conformed to the reality of his greatness. And according to this passage, the way for us to put a magnifying glass on the name of Jesus and his majesty is by living with holy resolves, living with new ambitions, living with love for the saints of God's people, and living for hope that's in the gospel message and faith in his promised return. So the Christian's whole desire at its best and at its highest is that Jesus Christ and his name would be praised. We as Christians say, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. Well, all of this comes 
according to the grace of our God in Jesus Christ. And we praise him from whom all good and right and gracious blessings flow. And our prayer is that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified among us. Let's pray.